Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 39. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is Ian Danskin of the YouTube channel Innuendo Studios. Hello. How did you get started in video? What inspired you to go in this direction? Well, I suppose it started when I was in high school. I'm from this, like, little town south of San Francisco, and we didn't have a very cool school district, but for some reason we had a school district that had, like, animation classes and video production classes. And I started taking those just because they were the coolest elective. And, yeah, that sort of gave me a taste for it. And by the time I was graduating high school, I decided I sort of wanted to go into film and video. And, you know, one community college and two art schools later, and I'm still doing it. And what particular into YouTube video criticism? Hmm. Honestly, I I found that there were a lot of things I wanted to, like, talk about in terms of games. Like, games culture was something I'd been immersed in it in a long time, and I was formulating all these opinions, and I wanted to get them out of my head somehow. And I had made a few videos in the past, like, for school assignments that were just me sort of filming myself and talking to a camera, sort of, like, proto-video essays, And I had decided that, like, well, I tend to write better when I'm writing to perform. And so I thought about making videos for a while and kind of never really got it together. And then slowly started discovering that there was actually already this, like, thriving community of video essayists who talk about games on YouTube, which I was like, wait, there's people already doing this thing that I've been thinking about doing for months. So I discovered Super Bunny Hop and Aaron Signal and Matthew Matosis. And I was like, wait, this is the thing I could actually do. And then, yeah, I threw one together. It's technically for a class assignment. Uh, I presented it to class and then put it up on YouTube, and the rest is history. And that would be This Is Phil Fish? That would be This Is Phil Fish, yeah. That was a pretty big phenomenon, or at least in our small corner of the internet when it came out. Yeah, yeah, it was unreal. It was very strange. So, would you like to talk about it? Sure. So This Is Phil Fish was sort of like, I was thinking about what topic would I want to start with if I'm going to actually make a video essay? And like the the series I put out earlier this year about interactive narrative is where I thought I would start. And then I, I don't know, I was just like, well, I kind of feel like the juices are going on that Phil Fish thing I wanted to do. So I started working on it and I got a rough draft done in time to present to class. And then I sort of sat on it for a couple months. I was like really anxious about it because I'd never really put anything out in public to the degree that YouTube is public. Like, I'd always put stuff up on Vimeo where nobody sees it unless you point them to it. And before that, I was just embedding QuickTime on my website back when I had my old website. And so putting something on YouTube was really daunting. It feels like debuting. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready yet. And, you know, that's after however many years of college and however many years of freelancing, I was still, like, scared to put something out online. And I sort of consoled myself by saying, like, well, you follow enough YouTubers that you kind of know how the arc goes. You put something out, it probably doesn't get very many views, but if you keep putting stuff out, you slowly build an audience over time. And so I put it online, and after, like, a day, it had gotten maybe 12 views. And then on the second day, as I was going to bed, it went from, like, 20 views to 100 views in, like, half an hour. And I was like, oh, it's picking up steam. What... What's going to happen? Am I going to go to sleep and in the morning it's got 300 views and it's petered out? Or in the morning it's going to have more? I don't know. And then I went to bed and I woke up and it had like 20,000 views and it had like 40,000 views by the time I got to work. 
and like 90,000 views by the end of the day. And I was like, okay, this is not what normally happens. This, like, everything I know about YouTube, this is not what usually happens to people on YouTube. I think a big part of it is that Notch shared it. I don't know how he saw it. We actually traded emails a while later, and I was like, by the way, how did you see this video? And he's like, I don't know. But he tweeted it out to, you know, at the time, something like 2 million Twitter followers, and that was a big part of it. And also, Phil Fish himself got himself in the news the day after I posted it, which, like, he hadn't been in the news in, like, six months. And then I make a video about him, and entirely coincidentally, he pops up and starts saying things, and people get mad at him again, and suddenly a video about the way people get mad at Phil Fish is super relevant. I couldn't have planned it better, but it's also really, like, uncomfortable, because Phil Fish was really unhappy, and that made my video more popular, and Notch was really unhappy about the way people were mad at him about, like, the EULA postings, like, the the new adjustments to Minecraft's EULA. And people were mad at him, and that's why the video resonated with him. And I was like, oh, my video is really popular because people more famous than me are miserable. That's weird. <laughs> it's That's a very strange, like, stacking of confluences right there. Right, right. And and it seems like he didn't make another video for, like, some time. It's like, because, it, like, it's hard to follow that up, or did you, like, not have the time and were busy with other things? It was a mix of things. At the time, I was, like, a part-time student and working a part-time job, and making This Is Phil Fish took me, like, three months wherever I could fit the time, and partly because I had a date that I had chosen to present it to a class, I had this, like, deadline that sort of pushed me forward. So part of it was, like, a bit of sophomore slump. Part of it was the video actually got me a few job offers, and I took one of them. And that job ended up being a whole lot of work for a whole lot less money than I thought it was going to be. And that kind of swamped me for a while. But it gave me the freedom to like quit the other job I was working and do something more in my field. So at first the trade-off was okay, but then it kind of wasn't okay. And I felt I didn't have time to make my own work. But yeah, a lot of it was sophomore slump. Like That video was really popular. And I think in my mind, I even sort of amplified how good I thought it was just because so many other people liked it. And I kind of stopped seeing the flaws, but still saw all the flaws and everything that I was making, like trying to make after that. So I don't know, having some time off was good. But then in like December of that year, I launched a Kickstarter and that bought me enough time to make videos full time for most of 2015. And most of that seemed to be picked up by a single long running series that was, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say, along the same cultural critique avenue as the original Phil Fish video? Kind of, sort of, yeah. Uh, so that, that series is called Why Are You So Angry? Which is a six-part series talking about Anita Sarkeesian and Gamergate and largely kind of a window into talking about male entitlement on the internet and how how the internet has sort of allowed people to express the worst parts of themselves without really challenging themselves against, like, certain ideologies that they pick up. And that was something that, like... Like, I put out a video early in 2015 that was about, like, advanced warfare, and then I put out another video about, like, the death of the adventure game, and then I just sank, like, four solid months into working on this series and then released them all in a week. And it was, like, 63 minutes long if you watch it end-to-end. Just kind of the hardest thing I've ever done professionally, like just working that long and that hard on something of that duration. 
And that kind of, that's the next thing that kind of blew up. Yeah, I noticed during the time of release that when you release a single episode, it suddenly get like this large influx of criticism from feminist critics and those who are like personally affected by it, thinking that it wasn't like fully comprehensive or you missed this point or that point. But at the same time, in the title, it says part one. Mm. Later on, you would actually directly address some of those criticisms in the later parts as they come up. And I was wondering, how do you deal with that when you haven't released the full argument and you release it piecemeal like this? To be honest, I didn't deal with very much of it at the time. I actually, like, I got someone to monitor my social media for me while I was releasing the series because and sort of, like, relay all the important stuff to me. In large part because I was like, this is going to get a lot of really awful people really mad at me. And, you know, like, I did, I did get Gamergate, like, trawling through my Twitter timeline to see if there was anything they could find against me. I got some big men's rights activist names, like, pissed at me. Uh, Sargon of Akkad has now done a three and a half hour live stream talking about how terrible I am. So at the time, I was, like, very consciously putting a buffer between myself and social media and just trying to focus on getting the videos finished and getting them online and waiting until all the dust settled to see what the critical discourse was. And after the fact, it sort of seemed like a lot of a lot of people felt that I covered enough stuff. I mean, it's such a broad topic, it is impossible to cover it with the amount of comprehensiveness that it would truly necessitate. And I was like, well, I, I can dedicate an hour to this. There is a point where you have to just stop talking about it and hope that you have covered enough that people can be happy with it. So, I guess in the time since its release, has like, like the effect of it still... I don't want to say haunted you, hmm. but is it, like, is it still affecting you? Like, the results and the reception, good and bad? I mean, Gamergate still doesn't like me, and every once in a while when I do something... I pop up on their radar again, and it always it always feels like rolling the dice, that it's like they'll get sort of mad, and I'll get a little influx of anger, and then it dies down pretty quickly, and that's partly the fact that they don't go after, you know, straight white men like me as hard as they go after other people. But every time I'm always wondering, like, is this the time that they decide they're just going to actually go after me and start trying to hack all my files and everything? And so far it hasn't happened. But it is like, you know, I get the brief palpitations every time I, like, express an opinion online that gets a little bit of attention and Gamergate sees it. And then they're like, whoa, no, 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 not on my watch. So that freaks me out. But also every once in a while it gets talked about by people I really admire and they speak positively of it. And that that does make me feel like maybe even, you know, more than a year after its release, it is having some positive impact somewhere. It still gets more traffic than a lot of my newer stuff, which is really weird to think about. I guess we should rewind a bit, and can you describe your process for creating mm. the videos? Process. Uh, process is tricky because it has largely been, like, I just sort of staggered into this and figured it out as I went. These days, I've got a flexible enough process that I can stick to a formula, but I can also deviate it when necessary. But usually what happens is, you know, I have an idea for something I want to talk about and I'll start drafting a script or even just jotting down notes. And eventually, like, once I have a draft of a script that I think is good enough to start recording, I'll record a temp version with, like, the crappy little USB mic I'm using right now. 
and I'll edit that and put that into a final cut timeline and start collecting footage for it and like get myself a rough pass. And if I'm smart, and I'm not always smart, but if I'm smart, I will divide that into three passes where it's like a video pass and then a stills pass and then any custom drawings that I do in Flash. And once I have those three passes done and basically the whole thing is blocked out, that whole time I'm making notes about changes I might want to make to the script. Like, I don't need to say this because I am showing this with this clip. Or, oh, listening to this script, you know, 14 times while I'm editing it, I've realized an angle that I want to do or I've seen something that's not really working or I've thought of a better way of phrasing something. So then I do a re-edit of the script and then I go into the sound studio. Because I'm a part-time student at MassArt, I actually have access to their sound studio, and that's where I do my high-quality recording. I won't schedule time and go in there until I actually have, like, a pretty locked-down version of the script because it takes time to schedule time, and I don't want to have to go back. Like, I did that a lot with Why Are You So Angry, going back into the studio to re-record passages I've rewritten, and it slows things down so much to go back multiple times. So then once I've got that solid audio version, I bring that into the timeline after it's edited and resync everything to that timeline and then, you know, put credits in, export, put it online, blast it on all my social media, and then see what happens. And then usually I try to have enough work done on the next script before I finish the last video that I can roll into production on the next one. That's highly variable these days. I guess you've learned from your different projects over the time on how to refine that process? Yeah, like, it used to be that I wouldn't do multiple passes. I would just start at the beginning of the timeline. It's like, okay, what clip goes here? Put that clip in. Okay, what still goes here? Put that still in. And it's not only a little bit slower, but it also makes it really hard to tell how much progress you're making because it's just, like, the distance to the end of the timeline when you work that way is so far that you just sort of sit and work until you feel like you're done working for days on end until you actually get close to the end of the timeline. Where if I do it in three separate passes, then it's like, oh, you're always not that far from the end of a pass, so you always have this like goal in front of you. And I find that more motivating, or at least it's harder to get discouraged because you're like, well, I'm just working forever, and I have no idea when I get to stop working. How do you choose your subjects for a video? I, I pick what won't leave me alone in my head. When I started this, I have a for a lot of my quote-unquote professional life, I've had a problem of just sitting on ideas for a really long time. So by the time I started, I had like a document full of topics I wanted to talk about. I just took forever to actually start making videos. And so like when I say like I chose This Is Phil Fish as the first subject, it was like, yeah, like I had probably a dozen other topics that I could have started with. And that's the one I went with. And, you know, like Phil Fish hadn't been super relevant for a little while. It was just something that I'd taken all this time to amass opinions and thoughts on. So typically, I, if there is something that just sort of feels like, eh, this pattern of thinking won't let me go, I'm going to have to just get it out of my head somehow. That's usually what I run with. And since I've started the channel and started putting stuff out more regularly, it's been about 50-50, like, stuff from the list I've had for a long time and newer ideas that pop into my head and won't let me go. So, like, I knew going in that, yes, I am going to talk about season two of The Walking Dead, but I didn't know that I was going to talk about Super Smash Brothers. That was something that I sort of, I fell in love with competitive Smash while I was making the series, and then I was like, I, I need to make a video about this. Like, I have way too many thoughts, and I have to get them out there. 
But yeah, it's very much like thesis based. Like I don't just pick a subject and then try to find something to say about it. It's much more, I find something I want to say and then I figure out what materials I need to talk about that something. I bring this up because if we, I guess, skip to almost the end of Mm. your more recent stuff, when you did the beginner's guide, Mm. near the end of that video, you sort of then turn it back on yourself as an example of like the scattered content of what people expect. And you, uh, you show like your entire YouTube list and then highlight the various things when you show like different focuses here, whether it be social or directly focusing on games or or otherwise. Well, that's actually in the Sonic video. Oh, damn, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know why I thought Beginner's Guide, because it's... They came out a week apart from each other. I wouldn't be surprised if they blended in. All right, the Sonic video. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the best time. Sonic the Hedgehog is the best time to talk about, like, myself and my social media presence. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of highlighted how, like, disparate a lot of your videos are, and it really is just what you want to talk about rather than any, like, set-in-stone guidelines mm-hmm. or, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, marketability of what your channel is. Yeah, marketability. <laughs> I have gotten success. Like, my most successful stuff has been almost across the board. The stuff that I never would have thought for a minute would be marketable. So whatever ideas I had about what is marketable content has completely gone out the window. Like, a 19-minute video about an indie developer who left Twitter six months before should not be the most popular thing I have ever done by any market research perspective, especially given how, like, the production values on that thing two years down the line. I'm like, oh, God, I would not make it look like that today. Yeah, I, I just sort of figured that, like... Don't say what people expect you to say, because when you say things that people don't expect, you never know when that's going to really resonate with people. So just try to make what you're excited about and see what happens. And that has sort of fallen... Like, the three categories I talk about in the Sonic video are... um, I do... I kind of do some videos about social politics, and I do some videos that are much more focused on, like, games specifically. And then I have some that are more broadly about, like, web culture... And I don't know if that's going to be the three. That was just sort of an arbitrary way of dividing them at the time. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I may branch out beyond other stuff, but it is really, like, I don't know. Like, I talk about what I want to talk about, and I try not to worry too much about whether or not people are going to like it. I analyze my data a lot, and I have generally found that the stuff that you would think people would like does not correlate to the stuff that people like the most. Or, rather, there's different ways that people can like things, And something that is less popular sometimes has a more passionate following. And sometimes that's actually really valuable to you. Other than video production, what is, I guess, an educational background because of, like, your wide variety of interests and your willingness to go in-depth on those interests? My education has been very strange. (laughs) Like, I went to a California public school. California is not known for having a very good public school system, although... Mine was better than most. And then I went to community college for a couple of years. And then I went to art school for several years and then dropped out during the recession because my family ran out of money. And then I was freelancing for several years. And now I'm back at art school again, part time, should be graduating in like nine months. So some of what I've learned is like very 
having gone to schools that talk about art from a very conceptual standpoint, as opposed to like, you know, just read these theorists and like memorize some dates and then fill out a standardized test. It's much more about like, you have to understand how to talk about very different types of art and understand what relates them to each other. But a lot of it is also self-taught. Like I have a lot of like very sort of academic liberal artsy interests. Like my, my beginner's guide video talks about like semiotics and enunciation theory and the death of the author. And none of that has really been taught to me in an art school. A lot of that is very like crunchy literary theory crap. And that's just sort of stuff that I seek out. Uh, I find that stuff really fascinating. I used to spend a whole lot of time on Metafilter and that becomes a rabbit hole for a whole lot of interesting critical theory you get critical theory wonks all over the place on that page and you'll find someone just casually throwing out like blah, 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 Ferdinand Socher. And I'm like, I'm going to follow that because that sounds interesting. And, you know, these days, if you're on the Internet, you have access to a whole lot of really, really rich critical theory. And if you're a geek about that stuff like I am, then, yeah, you seek out a lot of linguistic crap. It also helps that I used to live in Providence and I... It's kind of a college town with a whole lot of Ivy Leaguers around, and a lot of my social circle was Ivy League folks who would, you know, chat commonly amongst themselves about literary and linguistic theory. And I'd be like, that's really interesting. I'm going to make a note of that. And I guess it just continues from there. Yeah, I mean, I get self-conscious about it because I'm so aware of how cobbled together my understanding of a lot of it is. I really try to, like, focus on the stuff where I know enough about this to talk about this element of it. I'm not going to expand beyond that because then I get into shaky territory. And I think that's one of the reasons my channel has stayed so, has hewed so close to games so far, is that's also an area where I feel like I know enough to speak with some authority. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I research what I find interesting, and sometimes that rabbit hole goes really far, and I will read just book after book on certain subjects. It also explains sort of the shaky release schedule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I am juggling this channel with a lot of freelancing and part time, you know, studies in college. So I have a funding goal on my Patreon where if I get to that level, I can start promising a video a month. But right now it's really like I can promise a video most months, but I give myself the freedom to like if there is a subject that I want to tackle really deep, I will spend three months working on it. If that's what it takes. I was thinking more along the lines of that you go that there's so much research done beforehand on each one. Yeah, although per the usual, like sitting on an idea for a long time, sometimes that research was done a year before I actually made the video. But I, I don't know. I guess I have to do a lot of refreshing. I had to reread a lot of stuff about semiotics before making the beginner's guide video. Yeah, well, as someone who also sits on ideas almost indefinitely, I was nodding through that entire explanation of yours. <laughs> yeah. And as, like, one of the few other critics who care about adventure games... Yeah. I do mean few other critics. <laughs> I am really appreciative whenever you do release a video on one of them. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a niche subject, but... It's become almost like a rule now that every time I talk about some really heavy topic, I retreat to making another episode of Who Shot Guybrush Threepwood because that's like just, oh, yeah, let's just talk about adventure games for a while, guys. Like, seriously, it's great. And then, like, I don't know, I did We Don't Talk About Kenny, which was about an adventure game but was also a really heavy topic. So then I made a series about 
other interactive narrative, but that is like that is my soul food. Yeah, I know you have like all these important videos on important subjects, but the death of the adventure game is still probably my favorite of your videos. Ah, thank you. That one was at the time like it was the third video I put out, and it was like the most fun I had making a video. I'd been so stressed about this is still fish, and then so baffled by the reception of it. And then the video on Advanced Warfare, Blood is Compulsory, took so long to make. It took so much more work than I thought it was going to take. And then I turned that video around in like two weeks. And it was just joy all the way through. And I was like, oh, that was so great. Now let's talk about sexism. (laughs) Whiplash. Yeah, right? (laughs) I really could just ask you a lot on your thoughts of adventure games, and I will. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you see them going forward? Because you, you say in the, in your, basically your next video on focusing on that subject, uh, like the future of the adventure game and like all the different myriad ways it could like explode mm-hmm. in evolutionary terms. How do you see that playing out? Oh, I'm not so good at prognostication. So like, I don't know. I think it's really fascinating the way the Walking Dead model has blown up. Like, I think that's really interesting that there was this one adventure game that came out. Like, I talk about in in the various videos on adventure games I've done about how a lot of people tried interesting, like, kind of very strange, different ideas of what an adventure game can be in the late 90s, but none of them blew up so much that everyone else was like, oh, we've got to do this. And then The Walking Dead happened, and that it actually happened. Like, someone tried a different type of adventure game, and now that's become a whole subgenre of adventure game. We've got, you know, you've got Life is Strange and Until Dawn and even Dreamfall Chapters. Like, the fact that a sequel to The Longest Journey is now just blatantly aping Telltale, I'm like, oh, we've, this is really weird. We have come full circle. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know what direction it will go in. I assume... It tends to follow whatever sees the most success, but it's also really interesting seeing the way that like non-adventure gamey design values are seeping their way into adventure games. Like you get something like Gone Home is very directly influenced by like immersive sims, like the Shock series, in part because it's made by people who worked on the Shock series, and that's really interesting. That like now we've got all this environmental storytelling and audio logs making their way into adventure games. And you have a lot of genres, I think, that, you know, have a lot of adventure gamey design in them, but are not technically adventure games. Like, again, the Shock series has all this adventure game, like, very narrative-focused design, but it's also got a lot of systems design. And then after Irrational folds, all these people who used to work on the Shock series go off and they make adventure games. There were, like, three different Kickstarters a few months apart that were all for non-combat adventure games made by people who used to work on Bioshock. And I was like, so did anyone at Irrational actually like the combat in Bioshock? Because there's all these people who want to make very shocky games without any combat. And I find that really interesting. And so you get this, like, you've got this sort of explorative, simmy type of adventure game, and then you've got this very binary choice, lasting repercussions type of adventure game. I really think that, like, people are going to... People have the freedom to try stuff more now, and then stuff also... I think this is largely because of Steam and digital downloads and, you know, Kickstarter and 
the democratization of technology that allows people to make games with smaller teams and with cheaper budget budgets, but also distribute them to larger numbers of people than they could have a long time ago at that budget level. So you get people able to try these experiments and see modest but decent success with them, and then their influence actually filters out to other people. So yeah, I really think what's going to happen is people are going to keep experimenting, and then the experiments that take off are probably going to get, you know, people are going to treat it like a baton, they're going to hand it off, and someone else is going to run with it. You think, like, experimental pieces from various adventure games will make their way into other games? Yeah, you can kind of see it already. Like, Firewatch... Aaron Signal just did a video on Firewatch where he basically describes it as, like, this is kind of the culmination of most of the interactive design practices, like interactive narrative design practices of the last several years. You know, it's got a lot of the exploration of Gone Home, but it's got a lot of the, like, interesting dialogue with repercussions that comes from The Walking Dead and a bunch of other, like, elements. There's a lot of shock in there as well. And you're seeing people, like pick lots of different elements from each other. Oxenfree also had a lot of, like, interesting... It wasn't a very telltale-y game, but it had some very clear telltale influence in it. Again, because it had developers from Telltale. So, yeah, you're, you're seeing these, like, units of design ideas just disseminating out there, and people are picking and choosing the ones that they like. And a lot of them are new, and that's super cool. I also appreciated uh, when you... You did on the game, been there, done that, not one I personally <laughs> played, but the way you explained adventure games as a language, it's the sort of thing where, yes, I'm nodding along, it says this makes perfect sense to me, even though I had never thought about it in these terms. Mm. That video is one that I am very proud of, and it is the least popular thing I've ever done on YouTube other than ask for money. <laughs> and I, I'm kind of cool with it, because... Like, my patrons on Patreon, when I started that series, they were kind of like, I don't know how I feel about this, this is kind of weird. And then I put that one out, and they were like, oh, okay, we like where you're going with this. And I was like, great, thank you. I feel validated. But I'm not sure hardly anyone outside of them even watched it, which is ultimately fine. Like, I'm not really chasing clicks, and I'm glad that the people who saw it think it's cool. But, yeah, I don't know. I like that I can use games as an excuse to talk about linguistic theory, and then go back and use linguistic theory to talk about games. Speaking on that, do you feel that Patreon sort of gives you a freedom in your subject choice? Because prior to this, you weren't dependent on anyone and just made what you want. Does that feeling continue? Yeah. Patreon, I mean, I don't know. Most of my career was funded by Kickstarter, and right when the Kickstarter money ran out, I switched to Patreon. So I have almost entirely been crowdfund supported, but having to like maintain people is not something I had to worry about before. For the most part, it has not really been a worry. Like, the people who back me on Patreon tend to be the people who sort of like whatever I do, which is weird, but cool. I suppose anytime I lose a patron, I don't know why they left, so I the only people who stick around are the people who like everything. So that, that becomes a kind of confirmation bias. But Patreon has created a lot more security for me and a lot more freedom to talk about whatever I want to talk about than it has created concerns. Story Beats was the only series I did where I got any commentary from the patrons that was, like, concerned that maybe they weren't into my stuff. And then most of them were actually pretty happy with how the series ended. Yeah, yeah, they want me to just follow my passion. 
it's really strange that I have people giving me money to do whatever I want. And maybe I'll piss them off someday, but I haven't done it yet. Do you feel that your position is in some way as that of an entertainer as much as it is a theoretician? I really don't. Like, I am aware that my stuff is a form of entertainment for a lot of people, but I know what I like in a video essay, which is usually I want to have a perspective I haven't considered presented to me in a way that is interesting and easy to understand. And that is the experience I try to give to other people. I don't worry as much about, like, is this talking about a game that people are really excited about? Like, I get a lot of people writing and saying, oh, I'd really love to hear your take on this game. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to talk about that game unless I find I have something interesting to say about it. Like, I'm, I'm not going to just grab a game that I think people would like to hear me talk about and see if I can find something worthwhile to say. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't even throw jokes in unless I just happen to think of a joke while I'm writing it. I'm like, yeah, that's good. I'll put that in. I don't do, like, the past where I'm like, oh, this isn't entertaining enough. Like, make it more entertaining. I'm like, is this clear? Is this communicating what I want to communicate? What is the best way to communicate what I want to communicate? And that is really where I begin and end with my worries about it. What do you feel video adds to the essay format? (laughs) I, I mean, if we're being super blunt, like, the reason that video is becoming so much more popular than print is virality. Like, people... It's easier to consume a video sometimes than it is to read an article. It is often hard to justify making a video other than just you have a much bigger audience on YouTube than you have posting something on a blog or even on a website. Because I have a background, like I freelance as a video and audio editor and sometimes as an animator, like I am using skills that I've been cultivating for a long time. And part of the reason I do that extra pass after I've done an edit is because I want to iterate Not just like, okay, write the text and then find some footage to put under the text. I'm actually trying to make sure that I'm taking advantage of the medium to the best of my abilities. Obviously, like, there's a point where you say, like, well, I can make a really fascinating film about this, but I only have so much time that I'm willing to devote to it. But for the most part, yeah, like, I want to make sure I utilize my medium because it is my medium. Like, film is much more my medium than writing and, well, film, video, YouTube videos, whatever. (laughs) And so that's that's where I'm most comfortable. Like, I, I write better to perform, and I edit video better than I edit text. And so there are things like, when you're talking about games, you're already losing the gameplay aspect, and it's kind of hard to also lose the visual and audio aspect as well when you're working with text by itself. And so there is less of a lack when you make video, so that sort of helps justify it partly. But it's also like there are there are beats that I can put in. There's pacing that I can put in. There are having my voice recorded means that there's ways I can emphasize certain things. Like my, my video about uh, Walking Dead Season 2 like is very much structured for performance. Like I kind of designed that whole emotional arc based on the idea of someone trying to talk about a subject that is difficult and then getting upset and having to stop and start over again. And that does not work in a text format at all. That is very much about, like, I'll get to a certain point and then just scream an obscenity and then be like, uh, and, like, you know, have this long silence and be like, let, let me start over. And then I'll start over with a different beginning. I mean, there's all these rhetorical things that I'm setting up. There's, like, these three different threads that I'm intending to weave together later in the argument. And the false starts are, like... I'm going to start that thread, and then I'm going to start that thread, and then I'm going to start that thread, and later on I'm going to weave them all together. 
And again, that's very difficult to do in text because it's so much about this like intonation and tempo and rhythm. So I try to justify it that way as well. Yeah, I don't know if these are like weak defenses of ultimately just doing what you're most comfortable with. And that like raises the whole larger question of like, well, why is text the default? Like, is the reason text has been the default so long just because it was the easiest thing to mass distribute? Now that we can distribute video very easily, is there a reason to say that text is like, well, if you're not taking advantage of video as a medium, should it be a video? It's like, how many articles are taking advantage of text as a medium? Or is it just that we view text as a default? I have an answer. (laughs) Did I just blow your mind? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, that's that's a fair question to say in response. It's just... I figured that given you've been doing this for long enough that you'd notice some benefits or things you can do rhetorically with video you couldn't do in text. Yeah, yeah, and I think there are. I try to make a point. I'm blanking on a lot of things. I feel like I've had to defend this enough times that I have arguments. It is a lot of, like, rhythmic stuff. It is a lot of intonation stuff. There is also a lot of using the footage to say things. So we say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So a lot of the time using video is about efficiency, that I don't have to spend as much time describing something because it's on the screen, which means I can be much more succinct with my text. And I can largely focus on the conceptual stuff in the script rather than the descriptions of how the game works, rather than the description of what it looks like, what characters' voices sound like, what their performances are like. There's all this stuff that I just get for free by doing the video, which means my video can be much more about here is the big idea I want to communicate to you, and I don't have to explain much else because I have other stuff doing that legwork for me. Okay. Uh, speaking on to the visual aspect, do you find, like, since um, in, in the case of most or at least the older video essays, they actually, like, do essentially the Google image search, trying to find the image to match what they're saying, you seem to go into illustration? Some, yeah. And it's, especially when you want to explain some difficult abstract concepts, most specifically in the beginner's guide on how uh-huh. information is conveyed, I guess you could say video diagram you set up? Hmm. was incredibly helpful. Oh, thank you. Is that planned ahead of time, or did you just think, you know, it'd be great if I could just draw lines to everything? It was definitely planned in advance. Like, there is stuff where I'm like, okay, clearly this part of the video, I can play gameplay footage, but there is stuff that is going to be so abstract that there's no way it's going to relate to the footage that I'm I could put on screen. And so then I start making custom illustrations. And... I know at least roughly in advance what they're going to look like, but like a lot of it is still figured out while I'm drawing them. But yeah, I, I don't know. That's another thing. Like, I feel sometimes it's hard to make those things and not feel like you are basically just making a video of a PowerPoint presentation. But there is value to that, right? Like knowing exactly what picture to put up at what time helps certain ideas stick in people's minds better. So... Like, I I color-coded things a lot in Why Are You So Angry, where, like, okay, so these angry people that I'm talking about have all these different symbols that, all these different times that I draw different images, but I can always color-code one of them orange and one of them blue, and the blue is, like, the side I'm advocating for, and the orange is these angry people that we're talking about. 
And then it becomes this mimetic thing as people are watching the video. They come to understand, like, okay, when we're talking about this, it can stick in your mind better because you can recognize this visual motif that has been established earlier on. And I really think it makes abstract concepts easier to comprehend when you can make this visualization of them. And then people can sort of like imprint on that and keep it going as your, you know, half hour video continues. I just remembered that you did a similar sort of thing in the Smash Brothers video when you were talking about the what, four gods or five gods? The five gods? Yeah, and how each one of them has their own uh, set of characters that they stick with. Mm-hmm. You were able to represent them in almost like a graph. Yeah, well, that was... I can't take credit for that. That was, like... Those graphs are collected by the community, and I just highlighted different parts. But, like, scrolling the graph by... And like highlighting, like, oh, here's here's all the different characters, how they've risen and fallen. Uh, I, w- I was specifically thinking of the time when you like show the images of the four gods, and then you just next to them you the circle images of each of their main characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as just a, as a quick reference, you, if you want to pause the video and absorb all the information, you can, but that's not the purpose here. So move along. Here's the information <laughs> if you need it. Yeah, giving people the freedom to pause and rewind also, like, saves you a lot of effort. Like, you can make a very, very dense YouTube video because it's not like watching it in the theater. People have the ability to go back and re-listen to things, and you can get away with being very dense that way. Did you ever think of adding, like, uh, chapter segments to some of your longer videos? Like, in the show notes or something that, like, link to different parts? I haven't because I've generally found that no one ever, ever, ever looks at the show notes in the first place. And a lot of the time in the comments, if there's something people want to refer to, they just post that link themselves. Have you ever thought of just doing, I guess, simpler, shorter content that's easier to produce rather than the in-depth research work that you have? (laughs) Uh, Every video is supposed to be simpler and shorter than the last one. There, I want to do every subject with the depth that I think it warrants. And so sometimes, like, like the Sonic video is one of the shortest video essays I've ever done. Like, it's, it's about eight minutes long, and I was able to turn that around, like, one week after finishing the previous video, which is the fastest I've ever turned a video around. But it was on the heels of a video that's 33 minutes long, which is by far the longest single video I've ever made. So I try not to be a total perfectionist about everything, and I feel like I'm pretty good at getting to the point where I say what I'm trying to communicate is getting across. There's more that I could fiddle with, but I don't actually need to. And I just sort of let it go. And I'm pretty good at not being hard on myself after the fact. Like I can watch my old videos and not just cringe. I can see like, no, it's getting across what it needs to get across. So it's okay. But at the same time, I know that I could probably scale back on just how fussy I am and no one but me would notice and I, I guess I'm just afraid to let myself do that because I'm worried I won't be as happy making it and I won't be as happy watching it months down the line. So I don't know. Like I, I would like to not work quite as hard on it as I do. But right now, like I have so much work I have to do that's not this, that this is kind of my favorite work to do. And Whenever I'm working on something else, I'm stressed that I'm not working on this. But when I'm working on this, I'm not that stressed if I'm putting something else off. So I don't know. If I ever get to the point where this is actually my main breadwinner and I don't have much else to do, maybe then it will be stressful to be working too hard and I will start scaling back and like giving myself a break. But 
Uh, right now, being a perfectionist is not killing me, and I will do it until it starts killing me, which may be soon. <laughs> is there anything else about your work that you want to speak up on? Or feel hmm. you have something to say about? I don't think so. Is there something I should want to talk about? I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> I guess... What's weird to me about my career is how I have a very, very big gap in views between my most popular stuff and my least popular stuff. I feel like most people who do what I do sort of have like a range of like, I don't know, maybe they average 50,000 views per video and then they go up and down from that by like 20,000 in either direction. And I feel like the thing that's weirdest to me about my channel is that there are like two orders of magnitude between my most popular video and my least popular video. And that's really not normal. And I don't really know what to like. I don't know how to predict if my channel is doing well because it is so atypical of any other channel I follow. Like I like watching other channels stats, especially now that YouTube makes them public. And I'm like, nobody else's data looks like mine. I don't know what to make of it. I I saw you talking about that yesterday on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I try to share data as much as possible, especially now that I'm on Patreon, because Patreon is kind of a black box for data. Like, there are a million websites where you can scrape all kinds of data about Kickstarter, but nothing about Patreon. So I try to talk about, like, you know, here's what data I've gotten from Patreon. I'm in the process of doing my second big number crunch on what does my YouTube and Patreon data tell me, and then I share that with my patrons. And I just... It's really hard to analyze because it's so atypical and so weird. And now I'm also finding out that, like, okay, and now YouTube has just stopped tracking certain data for certain videos, and that's going to really junk up my analysis. I don't know. Everything is weird is what I have to say about my channel. Everything is weird. I don't know. I don't know anything. Can't think of anything other to ask. So, final question. What is your favorite video game of all time? This is such a mean question. I would probably, I think the game that I always come back to is Loom, which is that old LucasArts adventure game. came out right before The Secret of Monkey Island. And at this point, I can't even really justify why I love that game so much. Like, I have a long either video or article or something planned about that game. But at the end of the day, it's like... There's all these games you play when you're a kid that feel really magical, and when you get older, you start to see how limited they were, and the magic kind of goes away. And with Loom, even though I can see the ways that it's limited, the magic has never gone away for me, and that's really special. And it's it's a game that I have played usually around once a year for basically my entire life, and I, I just love that game to death. Well, thank you, Ian, for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Tell the lovely people where they can find you and how they can support you. Okay, cool. Yeah, if you shoot me a link, I will share it as well. No, right now. Oh, okay. Tell them. Oh, me. <laughs> me tell them. Yes. Me tell them. I got it. Yeah, I, I, my name is Ian Danskin. My channel is called Innuendo Studios. You can find it on YouTube at it's youtube.com slash Mr. Skimps, M-R-S-K-I-M-P-S. It doesn't make any sense. It's a handle I picked well before I was making video essays. I'm also on Patreon as Innuendo Studios. I'm on Twitter as Innuendo Studios. I'm on Tumblr as Innuendo Studios. So outside of YouTube, it's very easy to find me. 
As for us at Critical Distance, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance. If you feel that you can support us and you wish to, please do. Every little bit helps and it allows us to keep working on projects like this podcast as well as our many other features we have. As for the podcast, please, if you can, rate and review us on iTunes. I don't get a whole lot of feedback, and I love the little that I do and any at all that people can give. So please, please rate us there. Thank you once again for coming on, Ian. It's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you.